0: Today we're going to talk about prayer. Prayer is one of the things that, that it's said, we, we talk about it, we preach about it, we write about it, we read it, we do all that, we just don't do it much, you know what I mean? All that, it's it's an important topic, but we don't do it much. If we don't really do it much, well, let's turn that around today and change that. Uh, it's a powerful thing, and we'll get into that, but I, I think about the life of Jesus You know Jesus did all kinds of incredible things. You're following through the Gospels, and you see him raising the dead, curing leprosy, healing the sick, casting out demons, uh, walking on water. He does that cool thing. How how this would save on the grocery bills, he takes a little bit of bread and, and some fish, and he feeds thousands and thousands of people. He does all kinds of incredible things. But when a particular disciple comes to him, and out of everything he's seen Jesus do, you know what he asks him? He says, Lord, Teach us to pray. You think, wow, I mean, not teach us to cast out demons or heal the sick or raise the dead, teach us to pray. It's my suspicion they saw something powerful, magnetic in Jesus' prayer life because you read through the scriptures, you'll find he went to a solitary place to pray, which was his custom, that was his pattern. And he would pray to the Father. I've always thought about this. If anyone could skip prayer time, wouldn't you think it would be Jesus? You know, but he doesn't skip. He's always praying. He's always staying in connection with the Father. And I suppose that the disciples probably saw that the connection to raising the dead, healing the sick, casting out demons, and doing all those miraculous things was connected to his prayer life as he stayed connected to the Father. And so I thought, I bet that one disciple said, why ask for an apple like how to walk on water, if I can ask for the apple tree. And so he says, I believe prayer is the tree, the the resource that keeps providing over and over and over for all these miraculous, wonderful things that the Lord does. So we're going to talk about the work of prayer today. The work of prayer. Now, work is often not a word that we get all excited about. I mean, if somebody calls you up and says, what are you doing this Saturday? And you say, absolutely nothing, because you think they're going to invite you to a cookout or something. They say, great, because I need somebody to come over and help me work in the garage and help clean the garage. You go, oh, that wasn't what I was looking for. So work's not always a motivating word. But all of us have done work at some point or another that's been very fulfilling and very energizing and very fruitful, and that is really fun. I mean, when there is fruit to your work and to your efforts and to your labors, it's really, really fun. And so... Prayers like that, it has such reward that we really want to get a hold of how prayer works and how to operate in prayer. But with everything in life that you're learning, there's a process. There's always a process. And so there's a process to learning to be a person of prayer, of learning to have a a, a prayer life. Or, Or better yet than just having a prayer life, having a life of prayer. We want to develop a life of prayer. Prayer can be elusive and slippery and I know one time I tell the story we talk about prayer uh, a church we were at when we were first married uh, the pastor was on like this you know 60,000 you know week sermon on prayer and I remember it was like probably about like the sixth time session on prayer I thought oh my goodness can't we move on to a different subject you know than staying on prayer but then I felt like the Holy Spirit said you know what you know a lot about prayer but you're not praying I went Oh, okay, maybe we need to stay on this topic for a little while longer then. Because it's one thing to have it up here, it's another thing to be doing it in your life. And you don't really have it until you're actually doing it. That's why James says that we need to be doers of the word, not hearers only. So in anything you do in life, there's a process. It is. It starts with discipline and moves to desire and then to delight. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's if it's taking up running or cooking or you know, finishing some schooling or anything, a spiritual discipline, anything. It all always goes through the process of discipline and desire and delight. Now, discipline is not the, usually the fun thing. because Even the Bible says this, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but rather it's tough. But in the end, the end result is discipline has a lot of fruit it can bring into your life. And so we go from discipline to desire to delight. Now, discipline doesn't have to be super negative because a lot of times you say, I've got to discipline myself to finish the task tomorrow. No, you don't. You start wherever you're at and you grow on it. I remember reading about Zig Ziglar one time. Zig Ziglar was a Christian man, a motivational speaker, and he said that he, he had uh, decided to take up running. Now, he was 40 pounds overweight and hadn't ran in three decades, but he decided, I'm going to take up running. Now, how many of you think he ran five miles the first day? No, he did not. And so he tells about it. funny little stories in that. He was getting ready to run, and his wife said, you're not running until I go out and buy you some clothes. He said, my fat husband is not going to run around the neighborhood looking like that. So she went out and bought him some, some exercise clothes. And the first day, he made it to the first neighbor's mailbox. That was it. Well, I want to tell you about discipline. Discipline is doing today what you can do, so you can build some stamina to do tomorrow what you couldn't do today. So you just keep building on it, and then one day he's able to run to the second mailbox, and then to the third mailbox, and then to the fifth mailbox, and then one day he's able to run miles and had actually achieved, you know, being a runner because he disciplined himself. And now, how many runners do we have in the room? Don't don't be a, a shy. Raise your hand up high. Are you a runner? Uh, wow. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Did I, did I see anybody? I'm not running errands. I mean, you actually, you, you run. Do we have even a single runner? Laura, thank you. Anybody else? Do I hear two? Do I have two? I, okay. Laura, our only runner, apparently, in the room, although I know some of you here have run marathons and done all that. But you you, you start and you expend that energy and then Once you get past the discipline stage, and this is true not just of running, it's true of anything, you'll actually move to a desire stage. You say, how do you know that, Tracy? I read it, uh, (laughs) that you go from from discipline to desire. And so if you're a runner or whatever, apply this to anything, you may say one day after you've gone through some discipline, hey, you know what? I can't wait till work's done today or school's over or I get this task done because I want to run. What happened? You went from discipline to desire. And then one day, you actually delight in it. Now, that's not just exercise, and that could be anything, but that's the process you have to go through. Discipline to desire to delight. And it's a process for growing spiritually. There was a lady named Ms. Betty Tucker, and she started cooking at the Children's Memorial Hospital when she was 21 years old. Do we have any 21-year-olds in the house today? Uh Uh-huh, okay. (laughs) We got a lot of people, you know. Lot like calling those things that be not as though they were. That is a Bible verse. Okay. Okay. <laughs> twenty-one years old, she began working at the children's hospital. She retired at 71. She worked there fifty years. It's amazing because when you're twenty-one, you never imagine being seventy-one. I have a whole lot more imagination about being seventy-one today than I did when I was twenty-one. So anyway, she she started working there in the they created just a breakfast menu. It was a four-story children's hospital. They started developing a, a breakfast menu, and then they went to lunch and then to a supper. And then 15 years into this, they said, hey, Betty, we'd like for you to cook at the night because nothing ever ends at a hospital. There's always nurses and custodians and, and orderlies and doctors and, and patients and family. And so she started doing the night thing. She did the night thing for 35 years. And, but what she would do is she would pray over that hospital all every night. She'd start in the basement, and she'd begin to pray. Now, she was there for years, so she knew all the people. And she'd pray for the people. She'd pray for the department. She'd work herself up to the first floor and then to the second floor, and she started interceding over that place. And I thought about this, the power of having an intercessor for 50 years calling out to God, over those people, over those patients, over those doctors, over those nurses, over those workers, and she began to do that. Now, did they hire her to be the hospital intercessor and say, hey, Betty, would you please go over to the prayer room and pray for us eight hours a day? No, she had to learn how to integrate, how to combine her work and her rhythm with prayer. And she got to pray for people all the time, and her testimony's kind of cool. And she did that for 50 years I thought, wow. So it's a little challenge to us. What are you doing at work? What are you doing at school? What are you doing in your neighborhood? Are you complaining and backbiting and gossiping and stirring up discord and strife and trouble? Stop. You could be a missionary at work. You could wake up every day and say, I'm on mission. You say, you don't know the knuckleheads I work around, though. Well, all the more reason to have an intercessor there. I'm going to suspicion that in 50 years there was a few knuckleheads that Betty worked around. But she began to continue to pray. I want to encourage us to be people of prayer and weave our prayers into our life. Well, there's some tension in prayer and I want to deal with that today about what the scripture teaches so we can learn how to judge and discern stuff. There, there are some that say that when you pray for something, if you really prayed in faith, if you really believe God, you only pray once. Because if you pray twice, then you must have prayed in doubt and unbelief the first time. Well, I can tell you that I think sometimes that's true. And I think sometimes that's not true. So the scripture has a balance to teach us these things, and I want to I want to see that. I want to look at the James chapter one. James chapter one. James, the brother of Jesus, is writing these words, and I'm going to look at it in the message paraphrase, which I normally don't go to the message, but it's a wonderful work of art, the, uh, a gift of love from Eugene Peterson to the body of Christ, and it's a, it's a paraphrase other than a translation. It doesn't say anything different than your favorite translation, it just says it in a different way, and about 10 years ago, I was reading the message on James chapter 1, reading the message Bible paraphrase. And there's something that jumped out to me. And I want to share that with you today. It might help you in your prayer life. And here, starting at verse 5, the Message Bible reads this. If you don't know what you're doing, pray to the Father. Now, your, your translation probably says something like, if you lack wisdom, ask God, who will give it to you generously and liberally without finding fault. Well, that's what it's saying here. If you don't know what you're doing, you need wisdom, pray to the Father. He loves to help. I want you to remember that. He loves to help. You'll get his help and won't be condescended to when you ask for it. He won't say, I can't believe you got to keep coming to me for all this stuff. Can't you take care of this and blah, blah, blah? No, you won't, you, he won't find fault with you. And then it says that we are just to ask. Ask boldly. Ask believingly. Without a second thought. People who, and this is the phrase that got me, people who worry their prayers... People who worry their prayers are like wind-whipped waves. Hmm. People who worry their prayers are like wind-whipped waves. Waves. Don't think you'll get anything from the master that way. A drifted sea keeping all your options open. Well, when I read that, I thought, oh my goodness, how many times have I worried my prayers? How many times have i have just worried and worried and worried and worried and fretted? Maybe at best I was praying in hope and not praying in faith. And here, we're challenged to pray in faith. If we're not praying in faith, don't think we'll get anything from the Lord. Now, but here's the question. Can I pray about something repeatedly? Because I think there is a time that one and done. You've prayed, you believed, it's done, you're done. But can I pray in faith repeatedly? Because we know this, we're not supposed to pray with vain or empty or hollow repetition, right? The scripture says that's not right. So can there be faith if we're praying about something repetitively, I I think there is. I believe the Bible teaches us that we are to engage in the work of prayer. And our goal is to be able to recognize when we're worrying our prayers and when we are warring our prayers. And so the call of God for us is that we want to be prayer warriors, not prayer warriors. We want to be on our faces before God Warring our prayers, not worrying our prayers. And if you say, "Well, I worry my prayers a lot, I have too." There's now, therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but you know what I want to do? I want to quit worrying my prayers. I want to grow. I want to change. Now I want to dig into this concept of praying repetitively, but still praying in faith. This is Luke 18:1 through8. One day Jesus told his disciples a story. Now, he's going to tell them what's often called a parable. A parable is a made-up story. And when Jesus is telling a parable, it's a made-up story to have a spiritual truth that you want to take to heart. And here it says, One day Jesus told the disciples a story to show them that they should always pray and never give up. So why did he tell them this story? To show them that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. A widow from that city came to him repeatedly, saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people. This is not a good uh, qualifications for a judge, especially most of the Bibles call this the story of the unjust judge. So judges are supposed to be just. They're supposed to... If they, if they judge righteously, they should fear God and love people. Here it says, I don't fear God, I don't care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she's wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night, Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them how? Quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? So, we look at this story, and people are often saying things like, well, when you read a parable, like, I wonder what Jesus is meaning here. Sometimes Jesus doesn't tell you what he means Sometimes we get a glimpse into it because the disciples say, we don't know what that parable is about, and Jesus says, here's what it's about. But this one starts off with telling you what it's about. But people read this sometimes and say, oh, I get it, I get it. you got to bug the life out of God. And if you pester him enough and wear him out, because apparently he doesn't want to really answer your prayers, if you pester him enough, then you might get what you want. That's not what the story's about. The story's a story of contrast. God's not unjust. God loves people. God gives justice quickly, it says. And so he's saying, basically Jesus is saying this, if, he, if she can get what she wanted from an unjust judge who doesn't fear God and doesn't love people, how easy it should be for us to get what we want from God when we cry out before him day and night. And so don't forget, don't try to figure out what the, the moral of the story is he told us. Jesus said this, here was Jesus' lesson always pray and never give up the lesson is always pray and never give up can you see Jesus teaching like this I want to show that slide there do we have a slide for that Jesus teaching the disciples there I just can't picture Jesus teaching that way (laughs) but I want to ask a question how many of you weren't we all taught that way Now, they had rabbinical school and all kinds of teaching. They did get in classroom settings as they grew up Jewish people. But when you follow Jesus around, you get your education by watching him, seeing how he interacts with people. So his lesson is always pray and never give up. So this is warring prayer. This is working prayer. This is faith-filled prayer. It's it's persistent. It's relentless. It packs a I-will-not-be-defeated kind of faith. And I want us to have that kind of faith when we pray. I will not be defeated. I'm going to press in, not because God's unjust, not because God doesn't care, not because I'm trying to wear him out. Do you understand, you can't wear God out. He's not a person like the unjust judge. He's God. He doesn't get weary because, oh my goodness, I can't stand to hear from them again. No, he loves hearing from us, and he will give us what we ask. In Matthew 26, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you can read the story in full later. He goes and he prays, and he asks the Lord, he said, he said, Father, he said, this cup of suffering, this pain, this this stress, this grief that I have, I, I would ask, would you consider taking this cup of suffering from me? Then he prays a second time. And he asks the same thing. Would you consider taking this cup of suffering from me? And in Matthew twenty six, forty four, it says, After leaving them, the them is the disciples who were sleeping. I'm serious, this would be me. Not long ago, Darlene wasn't feeling well in the middle of the night, which can't, can't get sick on me in the middle of the night. And so I'm there in bed trying to keep my eyes open, and I fall asleep. She says, you wouldn't be a very good caregiver, would you? I said, no, I would not be a very good caregiver. So uh, I would be these guys. They're asleep. And then Matthew 26:44 says, after leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time saying the same thing once more. So here Jesus, he's prayed three times and prayed the exact same prayer every time. He gets his answer. It wasn't really probably what he totally wanted, but he knew this, the cup of suffering would not pass from him. And one of the gospels record Jesus saying this, shall I shrink back from this moment? No, it is for this moment that I came. And so he went through all the horrific suffering that he did, the cross and the resurrection. So I want to look at one last person. It's one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. One of the greatest prophets in the Bible. His name is Elijah. And Elijah is dealing with two very wicked, uh, a a wicked king and a wicked queen. Ahab, the scriptures record that Ahab was more wicked than any of the kings. One translation says he is worse than all of them put together. And then he had a wife. If you're not familiar with Ahab, you'll know the wife. The wife was Jezebel. Everybody knows Jezebel. I don't care if you've ever been to church, you've heard the name Jezebel before. And so they were wicked. And judgment came upon them. Elijah prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Now, that's a problem when it doesn't rain for three and a half years. It decimates the crops and the agricultural system, your food, everything. So Ahab was always mad at Elijah. We read earlier in the story when Ahab caught up with Elijah, said, there's the one who troubles Israel. And Elijah said, I'm not the one who troubles Israel. You're the one who troubles Israel. And he tells to Ahab, when they have this meeting, go get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. There's something about, I'm serious about this. Our faith is is supernatural. It's spiritual. Now, there's a lot of natural stuff that goes on as well, but it's supernatural and spiritual. Elijah is not hearing a rain coming in the natural The skies are blue, not a cloud in the sky. He's catching it in his spirit. And sometimes you might feel that. Something's about to happen, and I want to say good things, because the devil loves to put, we prayed about this too this morning, the devil loves to put a spirit of foreboding on people. He loves for them to wake up and go, gosh, I just feel like something bad's going to happen. No, I, I honestly, do bad things happen? Sure they do, but I refuse When a spirit of foreboding hits me, or something bad's about to happen, say, "Uh uh-uh, something good's about to happen. I'm not going to submit to that spirit of foreboding. And if you, probably everyone's had it. If you submit to it, it just gets worse and worse and worse, and everything's awful, and you know something disastrous is going to happen, and you need to say, no, I'm not going to buy into that. God's not giving me a spirit of foreboding and fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. So he's catching in the spirit that something good is about to happen. He said, there's a mighty rainstorm coming. So Ahab went to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed low to the ground and prayed with his face between his knees. Then his servant, he said to his servant, go look out towards the sea. The servant went and looked. He returned to Elijah and said, I didn't see anything. So what did Elijah do? Kept on praying. He sends him out a second time, a third time, a fourth time. What's he looking for? He's looking for the evidence of this prayer, the evidence to the answer that he feels in his spirit, and then finally it says in verse 44, finally the seventh time his servant told him, I saw a little cloud about the size of a man's hand rising from the sea. That's all Elijah needed. Elijah shouted, hurry, tell Ahab. Climb into your chariot and go back home. If you don't hurry, the rain will stop you. Faithful and persistent in prayer. Now not Vain repetition, not empty repetition, but faith-filled, meaningful repetition. Caroline and I have now been married forever. And we have probably said to one another that we love each other uh, thousands, thousands of times. And I really mean this, and if you haven't done this, then there's no condemnation, just change it. I don't think we've ever told each other we hated each other, have we? Really? Okay. Now, as far as I know, we've never said that. Oh, we probably failed it. You know, we probably had the, that moment where we, oh, man, you know. So, I mean, not me, but she did. Uh, and then, of course, she would say, yeah, I'll look what he, she had to live with. So anyway, so we said thousands of times we loved each other. Now, I want to ask you this. We're going to tell we love each other again. Do you think that's meaningful? But what about the repetition? Thousands and thousands of times we have said, I love you. I love you. Thank you. She said, I hate you. No, she did not. She did not. She said, I love you. It's, it's meaningful. Do you have family, loved ones, friends, children? I mean, you've got, you've got a little grandbaby, and they've told you for the hundredth time they love you, and you can't hear it enough. You want to hear it again. It's not meaning, there is repetition that's meaningless. That's not meaningless. That is meaningful. And so we look at Elijah, and we just go, wow. You know, he's one of the most powerful prophets in the Bible. He was blessed and empowered by God, though, Tracy. And, well, I'm, I'm just me. Okay. Well, I'm going to let you in on insight." I mean this wholeheartedly. What you're getting ready to hear is worth the price of admission. Y'all did pay to get in, didn't you? Okay, I just want to make sure. Uh, It's worth the price of admission. The New Testament clearly teaches, I mean clearly teaches, if you're a Christian here today, you are blessed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. You are blessed and empowered by, well, I don't feel like it. I didn't say if you felt like it. The... The righteous and the blessed, they, they, will, they just walk in what they are. They, they don't, they're not moved by feelings, they're moved by faith. And so if you're a Christian, now if you're not a Christian here today, I really mean this, today's your day. Give your life to Jesus, change that around. Get some power in your life. Let, let Jesus come in and transform you. And so Christians, believers, are blessed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Elijah's no different than us. Now, you may say, well, I I just have a hard time believing that. Well, I'm going to read it to you out of the Bible, okay? James, the brother of Jesus, writes again in chapter 5, second half of verse 16 through 18. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, here's where we lose people. Because people will say, well, Tracy, I believe that, but I'm not righteous. I'm not, I'm not righteous. I know there's some righteous people. Maybe you are. I'm not. Uh, and, and then we say this phrase, which we have all kind of been taught to say. And I get it. I get what we mean. So I'm not totally beating the thing up. But I do want you to know this. We need to change this. We say, I'm not really righteous, Tracy. I'm just an old sinner saved by grace. Okay. You were an old sinner. And now you've been saved by grace and you have a, a new identity i really mean that you may say well i think that's you know being nitpicky i don't i think it's an identity issue you'll never rise above your identity how you see yourself and so if you're saying i'm not righteous then you need to know this you are if you're a christian you could go to second we're not going to turn there but second corinthians chapter 5 starting at like verse 17 through the end of the chapter will say this if anyone is in christ they are a new creation The old is gone, the new has come. Then it will say that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. In other words, to take our place, to be our substitute. And we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, I'm serious about this. Hang with me here. Can you be any more righteous than that? If you're the righteousness of God in Christ, can you do any better than that? Yeah, but I didn't really behave yesterday. Well, I wish you would have, but I do want to say this. You're the righteousness of God in Christ. Am I for you behaving? Absolutely I am. But my identity is who I am in Christ. Not that moment in time yesterday, but who I am in Christ. Your identity will begin to change you. And so here it says, the prayer of a righteous person. Now, if you're a Christian here today, are you righteous? Yes. Yes. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective I can tell you this most of the time when I pray it doesn't feel powerful and effective but I don't care I just got a new insight on that this week I I, I don't care I like it when it feels powerful and effective but my prayers aren't moved by how I feel it's moved by the word of God I am righteous because of Jesus therefore my prayers are powerful and they are effective Yeah, but no, just stop the yeah, but, and just say yes, yes, and. I'm going to receive the word of God. I am righteous, therefore my prayers are powerful and effective. Are you ready for the next one? Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He was not some human spiritual hybrid that God created. He wasn't some kind of mutant that just was extra good. He was a human being just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. God states here in the Holy Scriptures that we can be powerful and effective just like Elijah. He was a human being just like us. He was a human being. Just like us. I want that to sink in. So we too, just like Elijah, can pray with effectiveness and power. See, I'm much more for praying if I can pray powerfully and effectively. I don't want to feel like I just wasted my time in prayer. I want to believe I was powerful and effective regardless of what I feel, regardless of what I see. The righteous and just shall not live by sight, they shall live by faith. I can tell you most likely, there's a, there's a testimony or two or three or ten or twelve in this church today who will say they began praying for a loved one who was far from Christ, and when they started praying with them, that loved one got uglier than ever. And they had to say, I'm not moved by what I see, I'm not moved by what I feel, I'm moved by faith in God's word. And they kept on praying. So let's begin this work of Prayer. I want to challenge us. This really crossed my heart as I went over this last few weeks, these notes. I, I was thinking, what if we are here for such a time as this? What if we are here to really become people of prayer? We're not just here because... Uh, we need to hear a good little message and prayer is kind of a staple in the church so therefore we'll tuck this one away with all the other messages we heard on prayer. What if God wants to use you like he used Miss Betty Tucker? What What if our prayers could impact and change the world around us and this region and this community? Let me say this, they can. Because you all can pray with power and effectiveness. To have the ability to pray with power and with effectiveness and not pray is foolish on our part. And so we need to start disciplining ourselves in the habit of prayer. Most of us don't have hours and hours and hours to just sit and pray, but what if we could be like Miss Betty Tucker and we could say, I'm going to integrate prayer into my life. I'm going to learn how to pray like breathing. I don't think about breathing. I just breathe. What if prayer just became such a part of our life that we did it as we worked? Now, I've always been very promotional of let's not just have a specific time of prayer, let's create a habit of prayer. Let's not just have a specific time of the word, let's let the word Infiltrate our entire life, and when I worked in out there in the world, as in the computer business. I was often praying while I was working. Sometimes, I, honestly, I needed the wisdom of God in what I was doing. And every now and then, somebody walked by. Excuse me, were you, you talking to me? Somebody. Nope, I, I wasn't. You know, and if I knew him well, I'd say I was talking to God. And they'd say, "Yeah, you seem like a guy who'd do that." And so, just pray. Be a person of prayer, and then as we just begin to get a rhythm to praying like we breathe it fits into life we don't have to set aside 8 hours a day to do it we do it with our life then we move from discipline to desire to delight now if you're in the beginning stages of this I warn you be careful if you're just starting that you are in the discipline stage of setting aside some time I want to encourage you to set aside some time every day to pray even if it's one minute that is your running to the next mailbox. You get it? One minute. And then that one minute will turn to two. And the two will turn to five. And the five will turn to ten. Who knows where it will go from there? But I'll tell you, it's very dangerous um, if you're just in the discipline stage to hook up to pray for somebody who's in the the delight stage. I was praying with Wayne Combs one day. He asked if we could pray. He said yes. An hour went by. Two hours went by. Three hours went by. I said, "I'm not quite to the delight stage like Wayne is." And I said, uh, "I said, brother, I said I'm going to have to wrap it up for the day." He said, "Oh, really? Okay. Like, like we just got started. No, we did not. Uh, so I just want to warn you if you're in the early stage, be careful because those people who are in the delight stage. They just they delight, man. But wouldn't it be cool to the delight stage? But I do want to warn you when you get to the delight stage, be aware of the people you're praying with who are only in the discipline stage." And, uh, and Wayne wasn 't condemning about that at all, but just you 'll have to yeah they can go ahead and leave because we might have a prayer meeting here and we 're going to have some more on Wednesday nights, and somebody may pray till two in the morning, but i don 't want those who are leaving to feel condemned about that, like I must not really love God. okay you just haven 't made it to the delight stage yet, and, and that 's okay so prayer's an entry point for everything for evangelism for life changing ourselves, for impacting the community around us. But it's not a doorway you just kind of step through and you go, okay, I've done the prayer thing. No, it's something that it becomes an essence of our life. And it can be so easily woven in to how we do life, just like breathing. So if you've never started this journey, start today. If you've been on the journey, but you say, oh, I got a little cold with it, let it refresh your heart today. And we're just going to become people of prayer. And, and I really challenge us: Let's stop I'm talking to me, too. Let's not take this lightly. We very well could be here for such a time as this to become people of prayer to impact not only our lives and our family, but the world around us. And don't be moved by what you see or what you feel. Be moved by God. Let's pray together.